0: Hello and welcome to the Methinks podcast, where we have conversations about history, faith, ethics, and sexuality from the perspective of two Christian graduate students. I'm Maggie and I study American history with a religious focus.
1: I'm Joel. I study philosophy and I tend to focus on questions about social ethics, justice, and arguments for and against God's existence. And today, Maggie and I brought on a special guest, Tyler Nyland. Hello, hello. So we're really excited. Well, I, I'm really excited. Maggie, how excited
0: are you? Ted I'm pretty Tyler? excited. I mean, pretty just excited? being able to hear someone other than Joel talk for like long periods of time. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's a big that's deal.
2: fair. <laughs> I think it might be because apparently I blew Maggie off the other week. Uh, yeah. She apparently saw me out mm-hmm. at a Juneteenth celebration in Madison and I just
0: yep. stared
2: right at her and <laughs> stared right by her.
0: True. I waved. It was a big wave. People saw it. Tyler did not.
2: I promise I did not see it. It's okay. I was absent-minded. There was a lot of things
1: going on.
0: I just walked away. It was fine.
1: There's plenty of forgiveness to go around. Yeah, so a little bit about Tyler. And and uh, we'll say more about what today's episode is, is going to cover, but Tyler is an associate pastor of Fountain of Life Church here in Madison, Wisconsin, and he is a seminary graduate. He, early on in his uh, pursuits of ministry and and early on in his undergrad, realized that he had a conviction about racial injustice, and so started to pursue um, ministry and started to pursue theological reflection on issues related to race um and justice from a kingdom perspective. And so he's now the pastor of a predominantly black church. Is that right?
2: Uh yes, not the pastor. I'm an associate underneath. Uh Great. Reverend Dr. Alex G cuz he's the man.
1: But uh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Alex G. I mean, he's sort of um kind of a big name in certain circles here in Madison. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. And it's becoming like he's his work Black Like Me podcast. I also manage that and he's I mean, we're like our downloads right now and especially in light of what's going on right now is insane. And so it's becoming really a uh, national, um, podcast big time. So,
1: okay. It's even bigger than I realized. That's good to hear. Yeah, it's good to hear. So yeah, Tyler just has a, a heart for, for racial reconciliation. And so we thought it'd be really good to have a conversation with him. Uh, Tyler, why don't you tell us even more about yourself? Um, how long have you been living in Madison? What do you like to do for fun?
2: Uh, I like to do for fun is listen to pop punk emo music and read Harry Potter, uh, and go to coffee shops. That's about like my biggest, uh, my biggest loves for fun. Um, but, uh, aside from that and eat Dairy Queen, peanut butter cup blizzards, those are, those are top notch. But, uh, aside from that, no, I, um, (laughs) I've been in Madison for uh, about three years now. I moved here. I I did an internship, um, at Fountain of Life in the summer of 2016. Uh, I was here for three months, and then after that, um, Dr. G asked if I'd be willing to move back um, after I finished seminary. I had my third year of North Park uh, left, and so I did that. I almost didn't come back for a lot of uh, messed up reasons on my own part. I almost screwed it up myself, uh, which you know ties right in with that failures theme of what we do, um, but uh, in the middle of that, I came back, and I was working uh, part-time at Starbucks for healthcare benefits, which was super dope. Uh, I became a coffee addict completely. And then I also work for Nehemiah, Just Fight Anger. I, like I said, I managed the Black Like Me podcast. And then um, I work for Fountain of Life now, full-time, uh, pastorally in that context. So, yep.
1: That's really great. And I think a conversation we were having the other day was really interesting. You were saying that some of the early writings or, or early work of Shane Claiborne had a pretty positive impact on your current pursuits.
2: Yeah, actually it's, he was one of the primary people. I went to a um, predominantly white, almost all white, school in the middle of the cornfields in Ohio, and uh, somehow I got a hold of that book, and um, it was probably the first piece that really awakened me. Um, I I grew up in a predominantly white, I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, the east side is just completely white. Um, everything about my life was like Republicanism equals Christianity. It's, there's no difference, they're Classic. just the same thing, and um Everything about that, and then so that started me on a journey that ended up going to. Uh, I took a class in college called Introduc Urban Ministry, and that started to break my categories of what life in the kingdom and everything was even more. And then from there, I went to North Park Seminary, um, and it's it's a quick story on how to how I got here. But in my first day of class there, I was um, Dr. Sun Chang Ra, who's wrote, wrote Prophetic Lament, he wrote um, Next Evangelicalism, all sorts of books. Um, I was sitting in a classroom with about 10 or 12 other class members and I was a 22 year old young white kid and everybody else was in their thirties or forties and they were, um, Titans in urban ministry already all doing their, their stuff. And I was, I was one of maybe two white people in the classroom at the time. And he looked at us on the first day of class, his first day of grad school in general. And he said, um, if you're a a young white person in here and you want to do urban ministry, you've not had a non-white mentor you won't be an urban minister you'll be a white colonialist and so (laughs) yeah he just like dropped dropped it in the first day my goodness and that was actually my reality I hadn't had a non-white even though I cared about these issues I hadn't had that happen yet and so um later that week Dr. G came in was a guest speaker and um, I asked if I could do an internship with him after that and he said yes and the rest has been history
1: it's been a long journey but yeah that's that's beginning process that's amazing um wow yeah and i met tyler at winter camp this past uh, winter.
0: That makes it sound like you're twelve. Winter camp. <laughs> I was at winter camp and <laughs> like I made a new friend. It was <laughs> so exciting. Though no, it's it, that's, that's literally exactly his reaction, though. Yeah.
2: It's funny no. though because we really hit it off. Did you notice that too? Oh
0: yeah, it was a little weird.
2: We were like best friends from the moment that we I mean, started talking.
1: Yeah, look, I'm an adult, but like winter retreat, winter camp, like it brings back all the nostalgia, all the feels, all the childishness. <laughs> so like it all, it all comes out. I loved it. Well,
2: usually it, those winter retreats for like young adults are supposed to be like the singles hookup retreat not hookup in that way
0: Okay, I was like, <laughs> really Interesting. just get to meet your
2: your your spouse oh. retreat and for me it was more of a get to meet your new best friend retreat so
1: come on it was fun there you go the listeners can't see this but i'm giving tyler an air high five um great cool. well we're really honored to have you here tyler and let me just kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about so look all three of us have lots of conversations about justice, about ethics and in different ways. Right. So uh, Maggie does a lot of history. She's a historian. So a lot of conversations about racial injustice come up in her teachings and in her research. Tyler works um, in a predominantly black church and in some of my research has pulled me into, thank God, into thinking more about justice, in particular about gender justice. And so we've like all been on this journey of trying to have conversations with others about justice and trying to learn ourselves about justice, but here's the thing, these conversations haven't always gone well. And I think as I reflect back on just my own, my own experience, talking with friends, family members about justice, um, a lot of the times my posture, my tone, the content of what I was saying was just completely off. And so it's, I think it's fruitful as Christians to look back on these experiences and to ask ourselves, how did we go wrong in having these conversations? Where did we err in, in manifesting the character of Christ? Where could we have manifested the character of Christ better? How could we have handled these conversations better? All for the sake of having better justice-related conversations in our future interactions. So we've grown immensely from the ways that we haven't done these conversations well. Um, I think we're you know, well-intentioned, wanting to have the right sorts of conversations, but we're people in progress, and the Holy Spirit is shaping us. So this podcast episode is about how justice conversations have gone wrong but what we've learned from those things. So I'm going to actually I'm going to invite Tyler to kind of talk to us about some of the conversations he's had with people about justice and um what he's learned from those and how he's grown. Yeah.
2: Um I feel like I have failed so many times in this place. I've said so many embarrassing things. I've I've really messed up. Um, I've I've hurt people in the middle of it, and so it's hard to it's it's almost hard for me to quantify what is one good story or what's one one example of how I've done it because it just feels like um, you go through it. If you're if you're going to be part of a journey of learning how to um, speak within context of injustice, you're you're going to go through um, places. There's a book called White Awake by Daniel Hill who writes a lot, and he writes about the different stages it feels like you go through. I feel like one that really resonates with some different places was, uh, I'm going to call it Self-Righteous Butthead. Is that Yes. Is that in the book or is that yours? No, that's, well, Self-Righteous was in the book. Um, He didn't write Butthead in the book.
0: Did he write something else?
2: uh, He should have. Okay. We should should probably talk to him about it. He probably could have sold more books with that. Do you all have... Do you feel like you understand and resonate with the self-righteous butthead category?
1: I totally get it.
0: I mean, I usually add pretentious snob into it. Ooh, pretentious snobby, self-righteous butthead. Pretentious usually goes with self-righteous for me a little bit more.
2: (sighs) Yeah, it's, um, unfortunately, it, it feels like that's a stage that you go through no matter what. Because you, for me, I had been... Growing up in a specific cultural place with specific political views, views of the world, views of different people, everything. And so um, it's hard not to attribute that to your context growing up. It's hard not to attribute that to um, the people that surround you. Um, And I totally would come home from awakenings and I would just rip my family in ways that was unkind, unfair, and it was actually more about me trying to learn and practice what it means to stand up and speak on different topics and issues, and my family's great, um, they're awesome, but I was just a total self-righteous, butthead, jerk-face loser uh, who, who thought that because he had spent um, I don't know maybe half a year reading Shane Claiborne that everybody else was stupid and had never understood or thought through these issues before um and so especially initially that was that was um something I really really struggled with
1: um Can you say more about the awakenings you're referring to? I mean, so reading Shane Claiborne like the content therein is a kind of awakening mm-hmm. um. Yeah, is that that's what you have in mind?
2: So a lot like that. I mean, I remember one of the things that completely blew my mind was our um, my intro to urban ministry professor in Cedarville. Uh, he totally he, he one day he just started class off and he just said we're going to do something um, because at that point I was you know still uh, viewing a lot of pieces about whether it's welfare viewing pe- people who may not work um, and. Reasons why that may happen and all of that, and system, I didn't, I hadn't understood systemic injustice yet, and so he just said, "Let's do a math experiment." And he ran down on the board uh, what it would be like for a single mother who's working three minimum wage jobs, um, and then also like taking into account the factors of like, well, we're going to do three under um, three wage jobs, uh, minimum wage jobs, but. You can only work 29 hours a week at each one because if you go above, they'll give you benefits and no one's going to give benefits to those who are struggling and in poverty in this way. So let's add up what that would be. Does anyone know what the minimum wage for state of Ohio at that point was? We'd throw it up there and he'd take it and he'd multiply it out and he'd be like, okay, so now we've got that. Now let's factor in what food expenses are for, and let's say this single mother has three kids and then he would just factor out all of those things and then he would factor in, every single thing that would go into place and the result was, I think per year they had 11,000 maybe and poverty line is 20,000. It's just, and, and working three, all this stuff. And we were just like blown away. And I remember it, it, I watched my preconceived ideas and understandings of how the world worked, just disappear in front of my face in that moment. Um, and so, in that way, that was way that, that happened experientially. Uh, I had moments where, um, yeah, I experienced different ways of, of awakening and different things like that. Even, even conversations, like I said, with Dr. Sun Chang Ra, who just told me, Oh, you, you think that you really know a lot of this? You're going to be a white colonialist in an urban ministry setting. And it's because if you don't have someone who has mentored shaped and checked you and you haven't been in proximity with someone who has, um, All of the experience who knows what it's like you are going to do more damage than you are going to do good in any way. So
1: that's so interesting. So, so talk about the way that being a self righteous butthead, I mean, impacted the people you're you're having these conversations with. And I mean, what does what does being a self righteous righteous in this way? involve is it like you wanted like people to see and have the similar assim, like the same kind of awakening experience as you and and if they were incredulous or like hesitant you like came down even harder
2: yeah it was I wanted to be right and I wanted to make sure that and I also saw things in a different way it was like you I finally saw something that I hadn't seen before and so from that moment on it almost felt like this quest, like you—it's ha- like my duty and my responsibility now. Which it, you know, it is difficult trying to balance, especially in times like these when you're, you, uh, you, you want to stand up against injustice because there's so much injustice going on, and you want to, but you're also trying to balance. Like, what does it look like for me to effectively, Christianly, prophetically, truthfully, but compassionately, <laughs> but gracefully, but not backing down. You know, all of those things you're trying to factor in. And I think at first for me, it was purely, um, self-righteous and, and I'm, I'm right. And I'm going to tell you all the truth that you haven't experienced or seen. Cause I've now for six months been learning things. So, um, that, that's sort of what it feels like here. It was felt like, yeah.
1: Yeah. Maggie. Um, so now I'm wondering about your own experiences. Um, Do you feel like you can relate with those
0: yeah i definitely can i mean i my entire career is not based on these issues at all um i actually study white evangelicals predominantly um so in my own scholarship like i when i come across um especially stories of people of color like i feel oddly compelled to like really look into it but I'm not sure how to integrate it well into my own research because there hasn't been historically at all a good pattern of including um, black evangelicals into the larger story and so it's like well who am I to do that first of all Um, and what would I be getting wrong and all these sorts of things and so it's um, it's a problem definitely but I think like in Kind of the wider context. Um, whenever we have these situations where we have flare ups, you know, of the culture obviously reckoning with racial injustice, it comes up at home. Uh, it comes up with my family, friends, church members. Um, and I think that it's different coming from a graduate school perspective because it took me a while, a couple of years in graduate school, before I was even comfortable talking with peers at school about these issues because I always felt very very cautious because i knew anything i said would be from the wrong perspective um i had a lot of experiences of just being told that i was intellectually dishonest simply because i believed the bible was scripture and so i i always felt like i had to be very careful on issues like this because if i said something wrong they would write me off as just a christian bigot and then that would like be the end of my witness that would be the end of everything right um, but I remember one conversation in particular that was very um, useful to me, that was with a colleague who has since passed away. Um, but she, it was during the Obama election, which says how long I've been in graduate school. <laughs> but anyway, we were talking about how she related to just the fact that Obama was, it was the night of the election, it was clear he was going to win. Um, and she was just talking about what that meant to her and how she wanted to be very proud, but she couldn't be completely proud because she didn't view him as black enough. And we were having this conversation um, and we got on the topic of faith. Um, and it was a very strange conversation for me. And I just remember trying to talk about like how I felt about it. And when I look back on that conversation now, I realize I should have just listened to her and like let her process what was going on instead of like being so defensive, and so I'd say my first stage, rather than being self-righteous, was definitely just being like so defensive. Um, in that like, I felt I had to be able to say something, but I didn't know what to say. But I just always brought it back to my own experience, um, and so that was problematic. So then I just kind of fell silent, did mm. like no conversation for quite mm. a while, um, and then I think I reached the self-righteous. Um, the self-righteous butthead, pretentious stage. I, I think I think pretentious works for me, maybe a little bit more than butthead. But you could ask my mother; she would not uh, hesitate to call me what it was. So, yeah.
1: <laughs> mm.
2: Those categories really resonate with me too, mm-hmm. Ben. Yeah,
1: yeah I, to- I totally agree, and I think the kind of like hastiness or like quickness to like want to jump into the conversation and say something. About the issue. It's so tempting. It's so tempting. The
0: biggest thing for me is that, like... It really did come from a good place. Like, I wanted sure. to share my faith with her. Like, she was such an important colleague of mine. Like, she was she was um, a non-traditional graduate student in a lot of ways. Um, she was older. She didn't quite fit in um, in a couple of different ways. And I certainly didn't fit in, in at grad school. And so I related to her in some ways. And I just really wanted that connection. Um, but I also was like, OK, I'm here in this place. I should be witnessing. Like, everything should be about that. And on one level, that's true right? But at that moment, um, I think I lost that opportunity to really relate well to where she was coming from.
2: And that's, uh, that's the big piece is that usually, usually it's with the best of intentions, right? Like when we, when we make these flubs and when we really maybe screw up or when we're not there, it's, it's, it's with the best of intentions that we're really trying. And that's where that piece, even like what you said um, about, and I've I've had this happen so many times where you you may say something, and then all of a sudden, in the middle of it, you get called out for it, and uh, it, it becomes apparent to you that that wasn't the right thing, whether directly critiqued by someone or, or not, and then there is that tendency to shut down or have that sort of fragility, like, I'm going to pick up my ball and go home then, I guess, if I I waded into these waters a little bit, and I, I failed, and so now I'm done, um, and I've had that happen <laughs> a, a number of times, too, so that makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, I think... My biggest struggle has been something that I, I would call I don't have as clever of a title for it as Tyler's, but something like the steam rolling butthead. Steamrolling butthead. The steamrolling butthead. Um and it's related to something Maggie was saying, this kind of like hastiness, this kind of like anxiety about needing to say something. Um, I think I, I often wrestle with that. Like if something like if something seems important to me at a moral level, at a humanitarian level, um, at a like a, at the level of like salvation, like you were talking about Maggie, like it's I get I get like really I have this sense of urgency that can often turn into a kind of anxiety. Like I need to say something now. Like this matter is so important. So it does create a kind of hastiness, and I often haven't listened well to people, um, people who I could stand to learn w- well from. But I think as I've learned a thing or two about justice issues, the thing that I've done is. Steamrolled people in conversations. Um, I can think of a number of conversations where someone would make a remark, say about gender equality improving in the workplace, and immediately I wanted to just, I want to just like respond and say, "Sure, you're right. Like the wage gap is closing at like lower tiers of uh, employment, but the wage gap between like the highest and lowest and mid tiers is like massive, right? So we still haven't seen the gender pay gap close." Uh, with respect to the jobs that are paying the most, the highest level jobs. And there are interesting reasons for that. And some of them, I think, do uh, ha- have to do with injustice. And it as soon as I start to feel someone like pushing back against that, that like urgency triggers in me. I'm like, whoa, this is weighty. This is important. This is justice. Like a lot's on the line here. And then I immediately like go in with like facts gun blazing and just come out wielding like the sw- the like sword of like statistics and, and Have I just do you experience that Maggie uh,
0: the st- the statistics sword no because I'm not good with statistics <laughs> um, but I, yeah I do think that there are times when um, certain things and I, again I think for me it's more fear and like defensiveness um, because when a lot of people start to challenge or push back on it there's always this this sense of well you picked that up from non believers. Um, You picked that up from like the Academy, which they don't know what they're talking about in the sense of they're not Christian. Um, And so in order to kind of defend how I've spent the majority of my time for many years, um, I'm like, no, 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 this relates, and I'm going to prove it to you. Um, So it becomes more like, and this is one of my major issues, I make it personal almost (laughs) immediately. Like it is suddenly about me and the choices that I have made and how I have spent my time and whether or not I have been like useful and practical. It's immediate. Um, And that's not okay. Okay. Um, because, again, that immediately comes back to centering around me and my experience. And it's just not at all that kind of self-sacrificial conversation that we need to have um, to be respectful, not only to like, the issue, which is important, but also to the people that we're talking to. Because that's why I start talking down to people, is because to defend where I'm at, I feel like, no, 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 you have to respect where I'm coming from. Um, and that's, that's just a completely sinful attitude, to be honest.
1: Tyler, could you talk about some of the upshots or the takeaways from your own experiences? Like, what are some principles that other other listeners can apply?
2: Yeah, I think I, I have one specific story, and I may have a second story as well. I might share. But uh, the first one is it, it sort of combats a lot of what I was saying about my personal experience, and, and especially my initial pieces, was... Um, when so i grew up in rockford like i said rockford illinois and i went to a high school called rockford christian um so it was a private school and while i was there um rockford is consistently known as one of the worst cities to live in in the u.s across the board on a lot of different things so we were we were the third most miserable country city in the u.s we were the fir- fourth most obese we we're the first on the underwater housing market ninth most dangerous sixth on something else too, Just like. All of these stats that are just so horrific about Rockford. Um, And I would actually go around and make fun of it consistently. I would actually root for us to get worse. Because I thought it was funny for me to go off to college and walk up to people and be like, I'm from the ninth most dangerous city in the U.S. I'm like super dangerous. Meanwhile, I look like the least dangerous person in the world. Uh, I just, it, it was... It was a piece of such arrogance, but also such lack of context and lack of proximity and lack of understanding of what was going on, because I didn't understand that fourth most obese meant that we had food deserts all throughout our city. I didn't understand that um, miserable means people are miserable, that we have job and economic and racial dynamics that are just um, ridiculous, racism that's been systemic in our city for so long. And so as I started to have my awakenings that I was talking about in college and then in um, seminary where I felt like my degree almost felt more like it was theology and race than it was just about divinity in particular. But um, as I was there, I got asked to come back and speak to my high school for a chapel. And so I went back and I decided I wanted to share on what it means to be a Rockford Christian. It was a nice, clever title, right? Um, But what it means to really care about your whole city because I'd been really processing these these things. And so I went back and I wanted to talk about God's shalom and peace for the city, about caring about your whole city and everything. And, um, I got to the point where I started talking about my experience and how I felt cool and fun if I said all these negative things about my city. Um, and I started naming those st- specific stats And at the end, the students all laughed
1: and clapped and some gave a standing ovation. (laughs) The clapping could have been taken as they're like, they were convicted and they're like, yeah, we need to care more about this. But the laughing laughing makes me think it's complete opposite. It
2: was all completely uh, mocking and completely like like thinking this is hilarious. So
1: these are like mini Tylers. This is
2: exactly the point. That's exactly it. And so, so. So I'm standing there preaching to this group and I'm looking out and I'm the it, the Lord spoke to me in that moment and it was just like, this is you. This was you. This was exactly who you were. And so how are you going to respond right now? This is how you were just a few years ago, not that long ago, just a, just a few years ago. So how is it that you respond here? Because um, I could have said all oh, you privileged white kids, how dare you, you don't understand anything, you don't know what's going on with the this and the this, and I could have just lit into them, Um, and while it may have been true, it would have been the most ineffective, but also just damaging and, and self-righteous and all of that, and who am I? I'm I've been there, and so just years prior, that was me, Um, it was exactly me and so being able to look at them with the eyes that God gave me and said how would you speak to yourself in this Um, and so they stopped and I said everyone I want you to know that I've had that same reaction before it's something that I've really done and um, I thought the exact same thing I thought it was funny because I thought it was cool or something like that but I think we have to realize that if our city's the third most miserable state city in the U S that means people are really miserable. Like, do you understand and know what it means to be miserable? Cause I didn't. And I still don't, but that's hard to know that that's happening in my city. And I didn't care ever. And you could just see the light, the faces were just like, Oh my gosh, I've never thought about that. And now I'm processing this. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's sort of the combating of, of that and so now so often in 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 every conversation i go into especially with white individuals i'm looking at people and i'm instead of saying oh i'm i've progressed or i i have have some understanding or something like that i'm looking and i'm going it is only by the grace of god that i have on any understanding on this like I can trace my steps on how God continually revealed it to me specifically and continually moved me on things that I would have never done on my own and so in doing that he's given me the heart to look at individuals and white individuals without I can't condemn because I'm the same I have all of the same pieces and it's only because other people helped me and were with me um and didn't condemn me as some evil privileged little white kid, but who looked at me and said, you're better than this. Not in a scolding way, not in a whatever way, but they looked at me and they cared enough about me to take the time to walk with me through it. And, um, so now I'm, I'm trying to practice that. It, it's a, it's a balance because, um, sometimes I can lean a little bit now too pastoral or too um, uh, my, my pastor has been talking to me about this, Remi- remembering that there still needs to be that prophetic piece where I speak truth and I call out what's really happening and I have to speak and say and and, and hold accountable and speak truth um, but I also know that I need to be able to do that in a way that is not about me and it's not about me looking right or good in front of people, it's about um, really knowing where, where it comes from so, yeah
1: Thanks for joining us on the Methinks podcast. Next time, Maggie and I continue our conversation with Tyler Nyland about justice conversations gone wrong. See you then.